Did you know that Bitcoin uses as much energy as some entire countries? Bitcoin has a massive network of miners called ASICs that require a lot of energy to mine and secure the Bitcoin network. So for Bitcoin to be successful, it's critical to have access to cheap and reliable energy. That's why miners are moving in flocks to Texas and running their mining operations off of natural gas wells, wind turbines, solar farms, and on-grid applications. But up to now, there hasn't been a place for Bitcoin miners and energy producers to connect with each other. That's why Digital Wildcatters is bringing everyone to the energy capital of the world, Houston, Texas, for two days of network and learning at the premier mining event and power. Maybe you're an experienced miner or energy producer that's looking for partnerships, or maybe you're new to the space and you want to learn and get your foot in the door. There's going to be content and opportunities for people from all different backgrounds. March 30th, the 31st, Houston, Texas, and power. Get more information at digitalwildcatters.com. Welcome to Tripping Over the Barrel, a series that highlights the unique personalities within the oil and gas industry and the stories they have to share with your hosts and lead storytellers, Tilo and Dr. Funkenstein. Chase, no, y'all. See, you probably don't get to hear that accent nearly as much now that you're not in Texas anymore, huh? Not, not as much as I, as I once did, for sure. Although, I've heard a few people drop y'alls up here. And it's it's a it's a welcome sound to my ears. I'd probably know yeah. all y'alls. I had to explain. It's funny. I had to explain to my coworkers the other day the difference between y'all and that it can encompass you know like two people, maybe up to like eight people, and then for a, a group of eight or bigger, it's all y'all. And they were flabbergasted. They were like, "But you understand that you're saying all you all?" And I'm like, "Yeah, 100. Yeah. percent I understand. Yeah. Like, I, I get it." But that's the way it works is y'all could be just two people. It could be up to a semi, you know, semi uh, sizable group. But once you get big, it's all y'all. Well, I was and, uh, uh, Jeremy and I used to work for a company that was based in Calgary and I was up for one of our corporate meetings. We went out for appies and, and we're sitting at the bar <laughs> and the lady looks at me and she goes, all right, Tim, listen, I need you to explain to me the difference between y'all and all y'all. And so I tried unsuccessfully, not nearly as cleanly as you did. And then I used it accident, not on purpose. I used it in the conversation, not more than five minutes later. And she said, okay, now I get it. Now I get it. Yeah. There's, there's some overlap there, but I feel like, you know, you have poetic license if you're a Texan, uh, to Absolutely. know kind of when to use y'all versus all y'all. And then you get into like fixing a, you know, I'm fixing to go to the store, you, all, all that stuff. And you don't hear any of that up here, but okay, uh, so I'll hear y'all every once in a while. This is We've, good. We've had, we've talked Texan. Thank you. Thank you, Jeremy, for letting us go down that path. If your last name's Nall and you're from Texas, I mean, it's Nall y'all, right? Now all y'all Nalls. All y'all yeah. Nall. Come, I that mean, is very good use of all y'all. Yeah, thank you. And so funny enough, um, we keep a, uh, a personal family Gmail account and there's a y'all and a Nall play on words in the Gmail account. So go. like, clearly we've heard it. I know Texans, I know Texans, and clearly you're, you're a Texan. So Ch Chase Null, and Tim, I love when we have these episodes when, when it's somebody that I'm just getting to know, uh, you know, have sort of been tangentially aware of his, his success at Drilling Info and, and his path, um, but didn't know on a personal basis. And you've never really met him at all, but had a chance, you know, when we, when we came on. And I think this is a really nice um, episode for us to have because you're sort of in, you know, we got the Super Bowl in a week. Let's think about like coaching trees, right? Like I view you as part of the Matt Wilcoxon tree, like 100%. for better or worse, like you're a younger guy that had a path at, at DI 
Um, yep. So, so I want to understand, like, learn a little bit about you, you know, as a kid growing up into college, and then um, tell me a little bit about your, uh, your business side too. Yeah, sure. Uh, so Chase Knoll, um, born and raised in Austin, Texas, and uh, was born, uh, both of my parents were in the Marine Corps, that's where they met, and so son of two Marines, born in Austin, <clears throat> and um, lived all over Austin, was really fortunate that uh, my mom was in real estate, and got to live in a bunch of cool different spots in Austin, really got to know that city. Um, went to a bunch of different schools, ended up graduating from McCallum High School, and um, went on to Texas State University, where I uh, played lacrosse. So wow. studied for four years at Texas State, um, had a, you know, graduated with an international business degree, um, and kind of had a, a, an interesting and meandering path. I actually moved to Japan for a little bit uh, to go teach English. That didn't work out for a number of reasons. Um, ended up coming back, kind of got into like the startup game, did that for a few years, ended up moving to Denver, uh, spent a huh. year in Denver, um, bartending at a great, uh, a great restaurant called Lola that unfortunately just closed its stores this past year. Where um, was that? I've heard that. Yeah. It's uh, over by, um, like, in the Lower Highlands, so you know where Linger is? Of course, yeah. Yeah, so it, I remember when, when Linger was still Olinger, the mortuary, uh, Lola was, like, two blocks down the hill from Linger. I think I've been there, yeah. They used to have, well, they, they always had a great patio, but they used to have this really incredible view of downtown um, because the lot next to them was just a vacant parking lot. <laughs> and then a developer came in and bought it and, and put in apartments. So then you lost the view. But when I was there, um, you had this great view. So anyway, uh, I was there for about a year and then decided that, um, you know, I wanted to go do something different. So thought I was going to go to law school, uh, took the LSAT, was going to go to DU for law school, hmm. had a really, um, I don't know, fateful meeting with a bunch of drunk attorneys at the bar. Decided not to go to law school. Uh, That's all it takes. Yeah, uh, it was was a really like life altering conversation. Happy to tell that story too, if we we get to it. Um, Anyway, uh, what I ended up doing was going back to Austin and getting my MBA. I got an MBA in entrepreneurship. And one of the Mm. teachers at the MBA program is a man named Ed Perry. And Ed Perry at the time was the president and COO of Drilling Info. Right. And so Ed recruited me to join Drilling Info, and that kind of kicked off what I'll call my like SaaS tech sales career, um, where I had a really fantastic eight-year run with Drilling Info, and uh, now called Embarrass, but I won't call it that because I work at <laughs> Drilling Info, not Embarrass. <clears throat> um, and yeah, I was really fortunate to then move on and, and run sales for a startup uh, in Austin, Texas. And then um, my wife's originally from the Pacific Northwest, and so... Um, when we were looking for kind of our next adventure, uh, that led us up here. And now I live uh, in the Seattle area and I work at a venture capital firm and startup studio called Pioneer Square Labs. Just, uh, it's funny, you mentioned not calling it Enverus, calling it, it's always drilling info to you. Yep. You mentioned you went to Texas State. Well, my brother went to Southwest and refuses to call it Texas State. So there you so go. So funny fact. I was the I was the last class to go to Southwest Texas State University. Mm, my freshman go. year, the first semester of my freshman year, I went to Southwest Texas. The second semester of my freshman year, I went to Texas State. So they actually gave us 
the option on our diploma to pick Texas State or Southwest Texas. Nice. I picked I picked Texas State. Um, but yeah, I I can say I attended Southwest Texas University. There you go. So, I mean, you you just I didn't even know about the Denver thing, but you just you bit off a lot right there. Um, to bring it back to me, because of course it's, this is my podcast. It's, it's all, all about, about me always. Um, I actually had a had a similar thought process, you know, you know, 22 years old, I took the LSATs and was pretty certain that I was going to be a lawyer. And it wasn't a drunken, fateful night talking to a bunch of lawyers. It was really um, seeing people that I thought were more similar to me in terms of like skill sets, maybe being outgoing, not necessarily being the strongest finance type guys, but you know, what are you good at? Well, people seem to like me. So there's that. And those, those dudes got into sales. I mean, like early t- 2000s, getting into technology yep. sales. And that's kind of what did it for me. So did you have an inkling once you decided it's not going to be law, it's going to be business? Were you thinking sales? Or are you thinking, I'm going to do this, start my own company and take over the world? Yeah. So I was really fortunate. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, both of my parents were in sales. So wow. they were both in the Marine Corps. They met in the Marine Corps. My mom um, went on to and still does have a very successful career in real estate. My dad um, was a VP of sales for a number of different startups in the Austin area. And so I think by virtue of just being around salespeople my whole life, like you don't, you don't realize how much of the craft you just kind of pick up. Absolutely. Um, and so anyway, I, you know, I, I had waited tables, which I think is a very good proxy for sales. I had waited tables in high school. Um, and really been in the restaurant industry industry since I was 14 um, through high school. I actually sold Bose, uh, like, you know, the headphones and the surround sounds and the speakers. Yeah. I sold Bose speakers um, to get through college nice. and did that for a couple of years in college and was always, you know, in the top three in sales for the store. Um, anyway, so the, where sales kind of gets more interesting is when I went to Japan and it didn't work out, I came back and I had like literally seven dollars and 35 cents in my, in my bank account like i had stayed in japan i had calculated that i either needed to leave by this date so i could still afford a plane ticket or if i stayed beyond that date i wouldn't be able to afford a plane ticket and i would be like literally stuck in japan homeless amazing and so um i bought the plane ticket came back home had seven dollars and 35 cents and i remember my dad picked me up from the airport and he was like what happened to you like you're like you know, you, you like, I dropped like 25 pounds. Uh, and I, at the time I didn't have 25 pounds to lose. Mm. Um, anyway. And so I was kind of like, it was this really interesting point in my life where I thought I was going to have this grand adventure in Japan. Didn't work out. Um, and it was like, very, it was a very humbling thing for me. And I remember mm. sitting there thinking like, okay, now what? And my dad said, <clears throat> you know, Hey, you need to get interviewing experience. Um, I'm going to connect you with a couple of my buddies just to kind of do like mock interviews. Like, I don't think they actually will hire you. I don't think they even have spots, but just to get the interviewing practice. And so he, um, he connected me with one of his, his friends named Tori Upchurch, who's wonderful man. And I went and had lunch with Tori. Um, and he, you know, we did the interview thing and, and he even said like, Hey, you know, I want to just kind of help you get, get a couple of interviews under your, under your belt. Um, and so the interview went really well. Like I, I felt really accomplished that, wow, I, you know, I, I, I thought I did well there. And do this. So I went to, uh, yeah, exactly. And it was like one in the afternoon. I went to uh, Boulevard Bar and Grill in Austin, Texas on Far West mm-hmm. Boulevard. 
and I bought a beer with my $7.35, right? <laughs> so like I was proud of myself and I was drinking a beer and my phone rang um, and I was halfway through the beer. And so phone rang and it was Tory Upchurch. And he was like, hey man, um, I actually just got done talking with our CEO. I'd like for you actually to come in and meet him. Can you come in right now? Yeah. Uh-oh. And, you know, like, remember, this is back when you could get a beer for three bucks. So let's just call it three fifty. So half of my net worth was tied up in this beer. <laughs> I had only drank half of it. So a quarter of my net worth was sitting at the bar. And uh, Amazing. I thought, well, shit. All right, let's do this. So I left the beer, went in, and got a startup job in sales, uh, just banging phones. Um, anyway, so did that for a couple of years before Denver. And then when I joined Drilling Info, I joined as an analyst, um, helping with M&A and financial diligence, stuff like that. Um, and I remember I was at a like sales kickoff, just you know, as an analyst um, at a sales kickoff, and watching Colin Westmoreland and Matt Wilcoxon like talk about what they were going to go accomplish with the sales team. And you know, it's like I can go do that. Um, yeah. And there's more money in it, and I knew I I could be successful. And so I, after about ten months of being an analyst at Drilling Info, uh, I joined the sales team, and that kind of continued my tech sales career, and still do that today. Oh, so when you were growing up son of Marine Corps and two sales, two sales people. Mm-hmm. Obviously you, you had an appreciation for what sales people do more than what most people do, but did you have a, any kind of a negative, I don't want to go into sales when you were younger or was it always, you kind of always had an idea that you would go in to do that? Um, <clears throat> well, I'll say a couple things in response to that. I didn't ever think I would go be in sales. I thought I was good at talking to people. Um, and I thought that I was convincing, meaning that I could like, you know, get people to think my way or I, I was good in arguments, stuff like that. Um, which, you know, that's not what sales is, but it's certainly a component <laughs> not of at sales. All. Yeah. Um, I was going to say, when did you find out that wasn't the case? That yeah, wasn't it's not the case. <laughs> but, but I mean, you, so there are certainly, <clears throat> excuse me, parts of it where you are getting people aligned to the story you're telling. So, you know, I, I kind of knew I had a knack for that, um, but I never and still never. I, I Here's my stance on sales. When done correctly, I think sales is one of the most noble professions in the world. Yep. Because when done correctly, you are helping to identify a problem. And if you can solve that problem, you are helping somebody solve it. The fact that you're doing it in exchange for money doesn't make it like a, um, you know, a bad game. Right. Like money is just a medium of exchange. It's just a highly transferable medium of exchange. So, yeah, I I would happily sell someone something in exchange for barter if I needed their services. And Mm -hmm. I do that all the time. But I I think sales, when again, when done correctly, is incredibly noble. I think the problem is, is there's a lot of shitty salespeople in the world. And therefore, most of us as buyers have had a shitty experience. And like therein lies the problem with sales. The first car that you buy, they flock to you right away. The guy's got slick exactly. hair, cheap suit, smells like cologne. Yep. Your your whole perception of sales is is formed. Like I even there are still some of my friends who are now early forties and partners at law firm that don't believe that this is like a a profession that sales yeah. is truly like it's. You didn't get an advanced degree, Jeremy. You're therefore short of us. I don't care that you make the same or more money. What you're doing is not a professional thing to do. You didn't need college experience to do it. And I'm like, at one point, I probably would have wanted to tackle that person. Now I just sort of smile and and feel bad for their, uh, you know, negligence. Yeah. 
I um <clears throat> I think just like any any profession, well, most professions, um, it's a craft, right? And yeah. I have spent twenty years learning it. And I still learn things about it. And I'm by no means, you know, the world's greatest salesperson, like far from it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that's why when you see people who are really like kind of in the the height of their power, it's a really like amazing thing to witness because oh. it's not, you know, doing a slick presentation in a boardroom, although that's what a lot of people think. It's really listening and it's really seeking to understand if there's a set of problems that you can go help somebody solve. Exactly. I love everything you just said because it's been, I've been kind of preaching that forever that, you know, I'm an engineer. So going through school immediately, everybody says, you know, you, it's always salespeople are bad. You know, it, you know, you, mm -hmm. if you're not driving a calculator or something, then that, that, <laughs> that's not good. Um, so I resisted it forever, but I kept getting yeah. drawn in people. Other people would kind of see something and want to stick me in. And of course, most of the time it was for the wrong reasons. Yep. It was, Hey, you're good at talking with a bunch of people and, and you don't mind getting up and, and really talking and thinking that's, that's what makes a great salesperson. I've never been more annoyed when some guy comes up to me and says, I'm a great salesperson. I can sell you anything. Give me your watch and I'll sell it to you. Oh God. And I, I just like, Oh, that's, that's absolutely right away. I would say that's not the guy I want on my team because, no. you know, and when, when you, and I, I guess I'll, I'll go back to this. When you have been effectively sold to, mm -hmm. you are happy yes. to have met the guy because he has solved, he or she has solved my problem. Yeah. You're, you're not only happy, you're thankful. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You're thankful that you had that encounter because a problem you were facing, whether that be a business problem, a personal problem, uh, whatever it is, like that problem is now solved or, or, or should be solved. And that's what is, like, you know, absolutely. One of the best sales experiences I ever had was at Disney. And they, they train their people so well. We're at, oh, yeah. you know, all these different things. And I kept presenting all these problems. I had a rental car I had to return. And how was I going to get back and all this? And they just immediately, they had a service for everything yeah. that I wanted, which was fantastic. And I became so happy with the Disney employees that basically if they ever had a suggestion, I just paid them money and said, okay, yeah, I'll take that. I'll, I'm doing that. And they were always right. And yep. uh, it was just to see such a highly trained group of people solving problems and not even, neither one of us realized that sales was taking place. Yeah, mm. absolutely. hundred percent. So. I want to, I want to pivot this a little bit and I'm, I've been just waiting to get, to get to this part because I'm super excited about it. Chris Dinkler, second episode in a row, Chris Dinkler, chief revenue officer in Varus gets, gets a mention. Um, but I was struggling a little bit in my career. This must've been late to mid 2018. And, and I sat down with Chris in the office in, in Denver and we're sort of talking about, is there a right opportunity for me? And Chris kind of paused and looked at me and said, you know, I could really see you sort of being like Chase Knoll over here, you know, kind of a young guy that, that really makes a difference that has a seat at the table. And I was so offended because like I viewed myself <laughs> as no, seriously, I viewed myself as uh, like, I'm Matt Wilcox. What do you mean? Like I'm the OG I've been in this game. I've taken small companies, blah, 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 me, 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 and made a judgment about you 
that maybe you were just lucky because you were at DI with the right people at the right time, which is horrendous. But I think people do make those sorts of judgments about people and individuals. It took me all of 30 seconds in talking to you to be like, this guy would be successful anywhere. He just realized there was a good situation for him and took that, you know, and sort of made it his own. Same thing could be said for people like Matt. So A, I did apologize to you in our first conversation for passing a judgment about you that if I didn't see your social media stuff, I'd probably still have. But also, let's talk a little bit about the lucky versus good, because I know every salesperson there isn't good, and some of them get to stay, whereas there are some that are truly great, and maybe they get dulled because they're part of a brand. Yeah, you know, the lucky versus good thing, uh, I talk with a lot of people about this, and credit to um, one of the managing directors at uh, Pioneer Square Labs, where I'm at now, his name is T.A. McCann. He was the first person who really crystallized this for me, um, and was like, oh, okay, yeah, that makes sense. But yeah, I mean, I think that the lucky versus good thing is you can be, you can be good at what you do, but if you're lucky to be at a brand like Drilling Info at the time, uh, and I, I won't speak on Inveris for no other reason than I, I'm not in the game anymore and I don't know. So, you know, I'd be ignorant uh, to talk through it now, but at the time, Drilling Info had a platform that legitimately made it possible for little guys to compete with big guys and literally made it possible for someone to have as much information as possible at their fingertips to make a really uh, important decision around, you know, oil and gas exploration. Yep. Um, and it was an awesome company with awesome people. We threw good parties. Um, we did good work. And, you know, I, I knew at the time I was very aware that like, man, I'm lucky to be here. Um, but I think where you, where you can get hung up is if, if you don't, if you don't realize that part of it is luck and you just think you're a badass, uh, and then you go somewhere where you don't have that same coverage, uh, and, and the world kind of punches you in the face a little bit and you yeah. go, Oh, wow, this is actually, you know, quite a bit harder than I thought because I, I don't have this, this brand, this experience that, you know, like these tailwinds. Um, and that happened to me, right? I left drilling info. And I, and by the way, I, I went into this eyes wide open, but I joined a, a startup in Austin that, um, didn't enjoy the same, you know, benefits that drilling info did. And that was a different type of fight. And we didn't have product market fit in the way that I think anybody wanted versus drilling info, having super tight product market fit. Right. Um, and so, you know, I think as you look at your career, there are times when, you know, make hay when the sun shines because you're lucky to be in a good spot. And then there are times when, you know, like you gotta, you gotta pull out your tool chest and sharpen your tools. Um, and so anyway, that, that, the, the genesis of this was, was you and I talking through kind of lucky versus good, but um, yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the things you have to figure out as you go through your career is, am I lucky or am I good or am I a bit of both? Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I think Fantasy sports, real quick, fantasy sports, especially football, like I have no doubt that there are are really good players on bad teams, but if they just simply don't have the opportunity, right, they don't yeah. have the team around them, they're not going to be any good. And then the judgments made about how good of a player they are, not entirely fair, because we can only judge what happens on the field, right, what the, what the stats say or whatever. But I mean, very similar to me that, hey, somebody gets hurt, now this guy steps in, well, there's an opportunity, he was probably always good, he just never had the opportunity, right? Yeah. I think I, I was just going to dovetail on that and say that, you know, I, I don't know who coined the quote, but, you know, luck is where 
uh, preparation meets opportunity. Right. 100%. I mean, so there are a lot of people who probably joined Drilling Info and coattailed the brand a little bit and were mm-hmm. able to kind of move along. But I think even within, I don't want to, I'm not going to throw anyone under the bus, but even within the organization, I'm certain that those it. people who weren't good were recognized as probably not being good. <laughs> they, were, they were just kind of no moving along. So I think, yeah. you know, lucky, I've always, I've always resisted lucky as, you yeah. know, you know, I, I was, I, this opportunity was presented to me and I was ready for it and it, it was fortunate for me or whatever. And it, it's worked out well. So I think, you know, I'm certain that there was so much preparation that made you be successful with the brand drilling info, which presented you with that opportunity to kind of move forward. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, we worked hard. Um, and, and I, I will never, you'll never hear me say anything bad about drilling info or the people that is a, that is a class act organization, um, that always took care of me and my family. And I really credit for investing in me as a salesperson. And what I mean by that is every Tuesday for however long, I mean, years, I went to sales training on their dime where professionals would teach me the craft of salesmanship. Right. And, um, yeah, like I, you know, that I wouldn't be where I am today from a career standpoint without that investment where the initial kind of lucky versus good thing came up is, um, that same managing director and I were talking about, um, up here in Seattle, you know, there's a, a couple of big companies that everybody's heard of, right? There's obviously Microsoft, Amazon, there's a big Google <clears throat> presence, um, sure. and there's Boeing. And so the, the initial conversation was talking about, so my, that managing director worked at Microsoft for three years. And I said, Hey, how'd you like that? And he said, it, it was like getting an MBA. It was incredible. And uh, I said, why'd you leave? He said, cause I was starting to blur the lines of lucky versus good. Was I a really good product <laughs> manager or was I lucky from the fact that when you can throw the name Microsoft around people listen. And that's yeah. where the lucky versus good thing really like, I was like, Oh, okay. Yeah. I could apply that to sales in a big way, but not to discredit any of the work that we did. And to your point, yes, there were some really talented people who, who walked through those doors. And then there were some people who uh, maybe weren't as talented or, or weren't willing to put in the work. And, you know, the, the, one of the best things about drilling info at the time was just the culture we had. And if you weren't willing to put in the work, um, you didn't last long. Yeah. And so we, we had a high bar of expectation. You know, one thing we had, uh, well, we've got a long history of having drilling, drilling info alumni on our show, but, um, we had Alan Gilmer on the <laughs> yeah. show and he recounted a story. And I think it was Ed who was, our, you mentioned earlier, yeah. standing in over the parking garage, overlooking the parking garage. And I believe it was Ed who said to Alan, look at all of the lives we have impacted just by just looking at the cars. All of these cars are people we've impacted. Look at all the cars drilling info has bought for the people that they've invested in. And I thought that was an interesting perspective from a COO and a CEO to be standing there chatting uh, about the impact they've had on the individuals within the company. Yeah, that's um, that doesn't surprise me. I have not heard that story, but that doesn't surprise me. Ed, is a great mentor of mine. And one of the things I still do to this day is I keep account of how many families and children um, are members of the team. So, you know, like if I have a 20 person sales team, I know that I have 20 salespeople, I have 18 marriages and I have, you know, 28 kids or whatever the count is. And like, that's a really important thing to keep in mind because 
by virtue of the work you're doing, you're not only helping people grow their careers, but you're literally helping provide for families. And I think that that is, um, if you're not thinking about that, I think you should, because it's really important. Man, I love that perspective. Kind of want to come work for you now. Yeah, that's such an evolved way of thinking, and and it's it's part of the reason that I you know have been so impressed with you and our minimal um, engagements. You also recommended a book that I'm a few chapters into right now, Atomic Habits by James Clear, which oh, yeah. um, is uh, obviously super motivational. It, it's kind of an uh, a little bit of an ego check, right, to hear what this guy had been through and and what he was able to accomplish, and sort of the humility by which it's presented. But to bring it back to sort of like. Um, you know, patterns and, uh, you know, sort of the recognition, because so much of life is about that. And, and you know, recently the, the Hoffman Institute retreat I went on was really about understanding and, and learning about all of your patterns. T- talk a little bit about that, the emphasis you like to put on creating positive habits and patterns, like even for the teams that you work with. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> you know, my, I'll, I'll butcher this, but one of my favorite kind of themes from that book is that you know, you are literally a collection of your habits, right? The things you do on a consistent basis yield results and those results kind of become, um, you know, you as an individual and, and tell your story. And, you know, I think it's so easy there, there, you can have so many patterns and so many habits and good habits, bad habits, habits you're not even aware of. Um, and I think when you, when you really sit down and try and think through the types of habits that as a person you want to keep, the types of habits as an employer you want to reward the, you know, the type of culture you want to create all that stuff. Um, those are all threads in that tapestry. Right. And so, you know, for me personally, I try to keep a consistent set of habits that that work for me. Um, and I, I, I don't believe that there's like, you know, some people are like, Oh yeah, get up at 4am and take a cold shower and go work out and then do that. You know, and that doesn't work for everybody, right? That works for some people. Um, at the same time, you know, some people are night owls and it's like, oh man, I can do my best work from midnight to 2 a.m. And, you know, that doesn't work for other people. So I, I do, I am a big believer in in finding the habits and the routine that works for you. Um, and then just being super devoted to it and methodical to it. And, um, you know, the grass is greener where you water it, right? So if you invest in those habits, you're going to invest in your rewards. Yeah. No, I mean, tremendous, tremendous. So, so to jump back to career a little bit. Um, yeah, sure. So you left DI, you had a, yep. a run at a startup that you scaled pretty quickly uh, and then decided it's time to move to the Pacific Northwest. Tell the audience a little bit about your uh, experience. It's Pioneer Square Labs, right? So you're kind of on the yeah. investment side, but, but doing some management things. It's a unique role. Why don't you tell us about it a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Pioneer Square Labs, uh, kind of otherwise known as PSL. So I'll, I'll call it PSL because it's easier to say. PSL is a, uh, well, first of all, Pioneer Square is a neighborhood. It's the, the I think, the first neighborhood um, in Seattle. And it's like downtown Seattle, right on the water. Um, and it's a very well-known area of town. So Pioneer Square Labs is located in Pioneer Square. Um, PSL is an interesting model, and it's one that I'm I'm a huge fan of. So there's really kind of two legs to the business. There's PSL Ventures, which is uh, run by two managing directors named Julie Sandler and Ben Gilbert. Ironically, Ben Gilbert is actually the co-host of the Acquired podcast, um, which was the, I think, I don't know, was or is or has been at one point the number one tech podcast on Apple. Wow. 
So, um, super it's a competition, guy. Tim. We got to yeah, catch up to them. We made the list once. One week we made the we list. We did. We made some nice. list. Yeah. yeah. What was it? Uh, top top 100 or something yeah, like that? In, uh, in careers, something like that. Career, in the careers, careers. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Nice. Um, so anyway, PSL Ventures is a more kind of standard venture capital um, play, right? We raise a venture fund. We go offer term sheets to companies that we think have a lot of promise, um, and they take that capital and deploy it to grow and expand and scale and you know all the things that come with it. So that's that's one side of the business. The other side of the business is PSL Studios. Um, and if you're not aware, a venture studio is a little bit different of a beast. So whereas a traditional venture fund <clears throat> goes and invests in existing businesses to help them get from kind of point A to point B, a venture studio actually partners with entrepreneurs from the onset and actually founds the business alongside of them. Mm. And then the entrepreneur gets to leverage the talent, the experience, uh, the processes, the systems that the studio um, has built and refined over time. So, you know, in the past five years, PSL, the studio side of the house, has spun out, I think, 30 different businesses across all different verticals, solving all kinds of problems. Um, and it's a really cool model to help entrepreneurs, um, you know, right from the onset, just partner with them as early as possible. So my role is I run our go-to-market efforts. And so I kind of span between the venture portfolio as well as the studio portfolio. And I assist our founders and entrepreneurs with pretty much anything and everything go-to-market related. Um, as early as validating an idea, like, hey, should we potentially start a business out of this idea alongside an entrepreneur? <clears throat> All the way to working with a scaled uh, venture-backed company that has a sales team and is figuring out how to grow and, you know, want advice or guidance on, you know, maybe a particular part of their go-to-market motion and, and everything in between. So it's a really cool role that I'm really fortunate to have because it allows me to see a bunch of businesses and explore a bunch of different go-to-market models and frankly, just learn. I'm learning a ton. And um, that's, in my opinion, one of the, the top three things you need in any opportunity. Sounds like a great a great position for someone with ADD to be able to just <laughs> stick into a whole bunch of different types of companies, different kinds of ventures, and and really you know maybe get the best out of all of those, and then really, you know populate around. So that that sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, the, it's like it's like a dream job. Is cool. It's yeah. it's really fun. It's um, you know there aren't many jobs like it. There there are a number of studios kind of in the world. Pioneer Square Labs is is definitely you know at the top of, of that list. Um, so I'm really thankful to have the job. And the best part, man, is oh man, the people are wonderful. They're just so smart, and everybody yeah. is you know there's no slouches, right? Everybody is really talented at what they do, um, and it feels good to be in a role surrounded by people where you're constantly going like I'm pretty sure I'm the dumbest person in this room. Love that. Um, you know, like that's incredible. So, so you've got like, so there's 30 uh, companies all told, are these all SaaS companies? Um, yeah, so I would say the majority of them. And, and to be clear, there's 30 on the studio side. The okay. venture portfolio has quite a number as well. Um, I actually don't know the exact number off the top of my head, but I would say our businesses skew mostly SaaS um, probably 80% B2B, 20% B2C. Yeah. But, you know, the one kind of thread of commonality is almost all of them are Pacific Northwest based. Sure. We really focus in our backyard and that's one of the values we bring is 
you know, we, we know our backyard really, really well. Um, but yeah, we're, we're pretty agnostic when it comes to industry or vertical. We, we play in all of them. Yeah. So I mean, for, for our listeners in oil and gas, you know, we, yeah. are there any brands or names that we would recognize that you, that you guys have your fingers into that we would kind of recognize you think? Um, man, that's a good question. I would say maybe, maybe not. Um, a lot of our, a lot of the companies we work with are, are pretty early stage. We have some super cool companies um, on the venture side. A couple that come to mind is Boundless. Boundless's goal is to be like the TurboTax for immigration. Um, the immigration oh, process wow. is is really complex, and so Boundless aims to help help individuals uh, who are who are going through a really taxing. Uh, immigration process, do that much more fluidly and easily. Uh, another one would be copper, which is like um, banking for teens. Uh, so giving teens a, a debit card and, and starting to teach like the fundamentals of, of personal finance. Um, on Who's Greenlight? The, would Greenlight be like a competitor to yeah, that? Greenlight would be a competitor to copper. I mean, that's an emerging um, spit. Like we, yeah, we, we use that for our kids, but it's like, I mean, the, the scale there is, is enormous. And I think there's huge value in it to like yeah. for them to put my nine-year-old or eight-year-old puts their thing in the, the thing, you know, and then it comes back and it's like, okay, well, here's your thing to sign. Like I, I didn't do that until I was like no. 18 or 19 and it was kind of scary, you know? Yeah. I think that's actually like a, a huge failure of our educational system. You know, you learn about a lot of stuff in school, but one thing you don't learn about is money. Totally. Right. It's like, it's like a faux pas to talk Personal about it. Going back to sales. Like, yeah, it's like, you know, a lot of us are taught that it's rude to talk about money. Um, and that's a shame because no one explains credit to you. And uh, funny enough, um, Ed Mahawkinen, who was one of my college professors, he taught political science, brilliant man. Um, and I, I, he felt so passionately about this, that he devoted an entire political science classroom lesson to how credit cards work which he didn't yeah. have to do. But I remember him saying like, hey, it infuriates me that when I walk through the quad at Texas State, there's a bunch of people hawking credit cards to students talking about, hey, here's a couple grand, you can go buy that new TV or like some shitty thing you don't need. And I remember he took an hour and walked us through like, here's how credit cards work. And here's why you need to be really careful. And no one ever taught me that. Um, and, <laughs> yeah. you know, like, we, we, it's hard to learn that. And so you know, I think that particular opportunity is, is a really special one to help. You know, I have kids, right? I want my kids to understand a lot in a lot more detail than I did how, you know, financial markets work and how credit works and just all that stuff. I think it's super important. Incredibly important. Yeah, no, this is so of the 30 or so within the lab, right? Um, yep. Do you manage all 30 or are you sliced off like a quarter of them <clears throat> or something like that? Yeah, I, I would say I have the capacity to work with all 30 if if needed. I yeah. typically work with two to three at a time Yeah. Um, and work with them kind of in, in varying, uh, varying levels of depth, right? So, you know, it's impossible to work with like 30 at a time and keep it straight. Um, and so I divide my, my time into kind of two buckets. There's like advice and action. Yeah. I give a lot of advice, right? So I would say from an advice standpoint, a lot of the companies book time on my calendar. We have a conversation, whether it's about hiring or, hey, um, can you listen to my pitch and like give me, you know, some suggestions or whatever it might be. And then on the action bucket, that's where you can really only work with kind of two to three at a time, just because that's where you're rolling up your sleeves and actually like crafting a go to market or actually doing, you know, calls. Like, for example, my 
my hard stop uh, at the top of the hour is is a sales call from one of those companies. Wow. Um, so kind of depends on on the company and, and the stage they're at. So what is a, I, I you know, I guess we have an understanding of go-to-market. We have a lot of guys from oil companies. Listening. What is go-to-market strategy? Just kind of dumb it down for, for us. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, it's funny. I had never really heard go-to-market as like a encapsulating term when I was in tech sales, uh, like, you know, as an operator. Um, and then you move over to like the venture side and it's a term that gets thrown around a lot. It's everything, yeah. Yeah. Um, go-to-market is simply the umbrella that a lot of things fit um, underneath, but really what it boils down to is pretty much anything and everything that involve going to market with your product or service. So like some more traditional schools of, of, uh, uh, of thought or whatever would be like marketing, sales, lead generation, business development, partnerships, kind of all that fits under go to market, uh, product led growth, uh, account based marketing, like all these things, uh, fit under, um, under go to market, it's basically just anything and everything around going, you know, to a market with your, with your offering. So you've defined product market fit and then it's the next step more toward the execution of it. Yeah, I think so. I mean, a lot of times you're involved in helping seek out and understand product market fit just because, you know, like you got to have the conversation. Um, But yeah, typically once there's at least an inkling of product market fit or a thought around, Hey, here's the consistent problem we can go help the market solve then go to market is, you know, taking founder led sales, right? That hero sales where that one person is out there doing the, doing the deeds um, and taking that to how do you make a scalable, repeatable, predictable motion by which you can attract and, and, and win customers. Yeah. And I guess some of the decisions that you're making are, is this something where we hire a sales force and we do it all internally? Do we partner with, some other group? Do we hire yep. Funk Futures to, you know, be our sales wing or marry us up with other people in their portfolio? There's a lot of different decisions to be made about how you go to market. And of course, the product that you have helps you determine how you're going to go do that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's the cool thing about it is every, every, um, every approach is different. So like right now I'm working on one that is very much a like, you know, enterprise sales type of motion. Then I'm working on another one that is certainly tech sales, but it's not enterprise tech sales. It's a much more kind of transactional uh, type of engagement. And then I'm working on another one where we're not quite sure, but mm. we think it's probably like probably going to be a big part of it is, is product led growth. And how can you build a product that actually builds your growth engine for you? And so you get to kind of navigate a, a bunch of different approaches. And that's, that's probably the coolest part is I had never had it. I hadn't had a lot of experience with product led growth as an example. Um, I just didn't happen to work at a company that really employed that tactic. Now, you know, people are realizing like, oh my gosh, what a capital efficient way to go grow your top line revenue. And so a lot of people are exploring it. So I get to explore that. And it's like, it's like a, you know, a free MBA in product led growth. Yeah, wow. it, It's really the, the setup you have is, is, is unique because as a W2, you have to inherently act sort of a certain way to maintain your employment status within an organization. You're almost getting to live. I mean, you are probably W2, but you're living as a consultant where you can really tell these guys how it is and what they need to do with little concern over, well, if these guys don't like to hear it, then 
that's really on them, right? Because you're being brought in to, to provide that level of, of uh, expertise and consulting. So do you feel that somewhat freeing and that you can just be like, listen, dude, what you've been doing doesn't work. You got to do it this way. And maybe it's harsh to hear that, but we've got to make this pivot. Like, like, do you feel there's more of an empowerment in the role you have versus kind of traditionally as W2 or just, just open-ended? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good question. Um, <laughs> so nod to another one of my best mentors, who's the current CEO of Inveris, a man named Jeff Hughes. Um, yeah. Jeff is a, is a, uh, like a library of awesome quotes. He keeps a, a running document of them. But I'll never forget, he, 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 was a, he is an incredible man and has had a huge impact in my life. But I'll never forget one of the things, I don't remember all the details. There was like some sort of difficult conversation. We had an all hands. Um, and like, I don't know, I, I honestly don't remember the specifics of it. But I remember Jeff saying, the best answer is always the honest one. Mm. Um, and and I, like, it just clicked in my head. And so going back to your question is, I don't care if I'm W2 or if I'm a consultant. Yep. I like firmly believe the best answer is the honest one, even if that's not what you want to hear. Like my job is to, is to, you know, be honest and, and candid about what I'm seeing. Um, but the, the, the thing I will tell you is like my success is tied to the success of the portfolio. Yeah. Right? Like I want every single one of those companies to win. And the cool thing about them is, you know, we get to look at a lot of companies. So we've, we've spun out 30, we've killed like 250. Um, so wow. we look at a lot of stuff wow. before deciding what to, um, what to spin up. Like my, my first month in the job, I was looking at one that like I, I made a kill decision. Hey, this isn't going to work. Um, and so the, the cool thing is the stuff that ends up, do, that ends up do working or ends up, you know, becoming a, a spin out. It's the stuff you want to work on. Right. And they're typically cool companies. And so while I may not be a W2 for that company, I very, I mean, I'm working my ass off to make these, so you know, make these companies be successful. So, you know, again, like the better the portfolio does, the better that Chase and all does. Uh, and so there is actually a really high level of care there in making sure that, Hey, let's figure out how to make this company win. Now there certainly is an aspect where I get to come in and say like, Hey, this isn't my baby. I'm not in the details sure. every single day. So I have a different perspective and I'm going to like, shoot you straight on what I think that is. Um, but yeah, man, it's, you know, it's, it's a cool experience for sure. No, this is, this is great. Tim, we didn't talk about oil and gas at all. So I do, I, we, and we got like three minutes before both you guys have heart stops. So, so I do want to jump in just to this and this is a pro, I'm going to put you on the spot with this. Now Maybe. that you've been exposed, I mean, truly outside of your eight years, you've, you've been in the true SaaS startup game. Could you see yourself going back to oil and gas tech? Oh, sure. Absolutely. Nice. Um, you know, I never thought I'd be in venture capital ever. <clears throat> and, you know, here I am. Um, I have a lot of respect and admiration for the men and women in the oil and gas industry. Some of my best friends. So, like, I know you had uh, Wilcoxon on. Like, yep. he was in my wedding, right? Like, Wilcoxon wow. will forever be one of my very best friends. Um, he's an oil and gas Dinkler, who you mentioned, yep. I like his wife better than I like him, but I like Dinkler. Most, yeah. Uh, Julie's <laughs> great. His Shout kid to too. His Dinkler. kids. Yeah. His kids too. You know, I don't know sure. his kids as well, um, but his <laughs> wife's incredible. Dinkler's all right. Yeah, but no, I mean, I think there are, man, what wonderful people in oil and gas. My dad was in oil and gas for a number of years. Um, later on, not, not when I was a kid, but yeah, I mean, I would never shut the door on any opportunity, right? Like if there's, 
a compelling oil and gas tech opportunity where I think I can go make a difference, then I'm certainly, I have no beef with it. Um, I don't think that'll happen. Not because I have any, like I said, any, any like ill will or like think poorly of oil and gas. It's more of like a locational thing. I'm gonna say, um, you're, in the, not, you're in Seattle now. They don't just come knocking on your door. Yeah, um, but certainly, yeah. like, no, I have, I have no problem with it. And, and if there was a, a good, you know, a great company solving a great problem, then I'd be happy to jump back in it. I, I have a real on a lighter side question. So you've lived in Austin, Japan, Seattle, Denver. What's, what's the biggest misconception of Seattle for us, for guys down here in Texas or in Denver? <laughs> That's easy. Um, so yeah, lived in a bunch of places, right? Lived in Austin, Houston for four years, Denver, Japan, um, San Marcos, Seattle. And the one thing I'll say about living a bunch of places is everyone should do it. Um, and they all have pros and cons, right? But the biggest misconception about Seattle that everybody talks about is like, oh my gosh, it's so rainy and gray and depressing right. and dreary. And here's what I'll say, like, yes, it is a different climate. And there are days where it is foggy. You know, like the other day was so foggy that like, you know, it's hard to drive down the street. <laughs> you get those like foggy, dreary, rainy days. Um, but on like, you also get your fair share of bright, clear, crisp, beautiful, sunny days. Um, just like in Texas, you get days that are like scorchingly hot. And then you have like beautiful October afternoons. So, you know, for anybody who says like the weather in Seattle sucks, I, I would disagree. Like get you a good pair of boots and a good rain jacket. Um, there are going to be some rainy days, but man, there are some glorious days as well. It's, it's a, it's a awesome place to live, man. Like the Pacific Northwest is, I wouldn't live here if I didn't love it. I'll put it that right. way. Yeah. I've never been out. I'm going to visit. I'm going to start stalking you even more. Man. Chase, now you crushed this, man. Thank you so much for, for shedding so much light uh, from your awesome career and best of luck with everything going forward, my man. Man, guys really appreciate the opportunity. I had a ton of fun talking with you. Um, and yeah, I wish you guys the best of luck. Thanks for having me. And, and I'm, I'm now a dedicated listener. Nice. <laughs> nice to meet you, Chase. <laughs>